0: John chapter 12, verses 12 to 33. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the Prince of this world will be driven out and I when I'm lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die.
1: Now this last week I had the pleasure of speaking at our local Cub Scouts group, Withington Cubs. And these Cubs are working on their faith badge. You know, the Cubs have badges for different things that they've they've, they've learned or hobbies or pursuits that they've done. Um, various faith leaders in the community have been invited to speak to them and I was the first one up. So last week I found myself scratching my head and thinking, What on earth do you say about Christianity in 20 minutes to a group of lively 8 to 10 year olds on Zoom? Now on one level I started to fear that it was an impossible task. But on another level I realised that in some ways it's the simplest thing. You just have to tell them about Jesus. Christianity, it's all about Jesus. It's not primarily about rules, although we have got rules, rules for living, good rules that God gives us. But it's not primarily about that, nor is it primarily a matter of rituals. Now, we do have some rituals. uh, We baptise. We take the Lord's Supper. I suppose you could say that singing and praying and so on are rituals. But the, the heart of Christianity isn't about rituals either. The essence of it is about a real relationship, a relationship with Jesus. And so the heart of a Christian is somebody who believes in Jesus. And what I said to the Cubs was, we all believe in people from history. You might say, I believe in Julius Caesar. I believe in Henry VIII. I believe in whoever it might be. But that belief doesn't go any further than just acknowledging some historical data. Belief in Jesus means something entirely different. It means accepting that his words are authoritative and they govern your life. It means trusting your whole life to him now and in the future. Submitting to him as Lord. It means betting your life that what Jesus says is true. It means following him, obeying him, letting him be Lord in all things. And so believing in Jesus is radical. In John's Gospel it's made very clear that that's what every single human being needs. We need to believe in Jesus, to believe in him, so that we can have life in his name. The Bible warns about three different kinds of death that we're all subject to. Three different kinds of death. Firstly, there's spiritual death in the world right now. We are spiritually dead. We're not alive to God. Secondly, there is physical death. Your body's going to die. You'll die one day. And then thirdly, there is eternal death most sobering prospect of all is being separated from God throughout all eternity he is the giver of life to be separated from him is eternal death but Jesus is the way to life in all three senses the way to a new spiritual life right now the way to life physically after death and the way to eternal life forever and ever now what this means is that the one thing we all really need today is to see Jesus, I know we're still in lockdown. I know we're frustrated and fed up with it. I know we're weary. I know some of us are struggling with isolation and loneliness. Others with anxiety and fear. Some with grief. Others maybe have had a pay cut or they're furloughed. They're bored. Some have even lost their jobs. But what we all need is to see Jesus. All of us, regardless of who we are. And it's summed up actually in our text. If you want to look at your Bible, in verse 21, some Greek people come to the disciples and they say, our translation here, the New International Version says, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And I think that's a little bit too polite. I think this is better. Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. That's better. That's what we need. We want to see Jesus. And you know, people are still asking this question. Nicky Gumbel is an Anglican vicar. He's based in the great city of London. He's the founder of the Alpha Course and he's an inspirational speaker. And in a recent article in the Times newspaper, Gumbel spoke about how the younger generation who are often called Generation Z, are actually more and more open to asking spiritual questions and seeking Christian answers. Gumbel commented that he reckons over 20 million people have now taken the Alpha course. Now just think about 20 million people. That's that's more than, I think, more than five times the whole number of people that were alive in the world when Jesus walked this earth. And the average age of those people is 27 People are still asking. We want to see Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try and see Jesus, which means we're going to spend our next time, maybe half an hour, in the most worthwhile pursuit we can possibly imagine. The best thing we could be doing today is gazing upon, studying, learning and loving Jesus Christ. And there's no better place than John chapter 12. Reba just read The center of it for us. We see three things about Jesus here the splendor of the King, the grain that must die, the grain that must die, and the glory of the Father, glory of Jesus' Father. The splendor of the King, the grain that must die, the glory of the Father. Splendor of the King, we're starting in verse 12 with this great crowd that have come for the festival and they start praising and welcoming Jesus. Now, just can you imagine this scene with me for a moment? It's Passover time. This is the biggest festival in the Jewish calendar, the busiest time of year in Jerusalem. Scholars reckon that the the population of the city was swelled by many times its normal size as thousands of pilgrims travel, not just from around Palestine, but actually from around the world, the, the diaspora as it was called. And the pilgrims come for this once-a-year special time of Passover where they remember the historic rescue of God that brought them out of Egypt. It's an exciting time. It's a party time. Emotions run high. But this year there was an extra dimension because everyone was talking about Jesus. Now news has been spreading about Jesus for about three years. But here it has reached another level because quite recently Jesus raised a man from the dead a man called Lazarus in a town called Bethany that was quite near Jerusalem you could get there in easily in a day and a crowd of people from Jerusalem who were there saw it happen and then they came back and told and so more people went out to try and verify the story and to see Lazarus and to see Jesus. And they've come back and verse 17 says they are spreading the word. And that explains what happens next because the excitement now has risen to fever pitch. People have been speculating. Is this Jesus, the king that God promised to rescue our nation? Where is he? Is he going to come to the Passover now? Is he coming to the festival? And finally the word gets out. He's on his way. And that prompts the most extraordinary scene. Verse 12 says that the great crowd great crowd huge crowd that had come for the festival here that Jesus is on his way and now finally here is Jesus he normally walks humbly but this time he's riding on a young donkey in the dignity of a visiting prophet or a king the other gospel writers Matthew Mark and Luke add some extra details John is very brief here they add that people started literally taking their cloaks off and spreading them on the ground in front of him And they went into the fields and cut down green foliage and they spread it on the ground. So Jesus is coming in on this kind of carpet, like rolling out the red carpet. But it's green and it's cloaks and he's riding in on it. And here John actually tells us that they they cut palm branches, which is significant culturally. And they wave these branches like banners, just as others had done hundreds of years before at the coronation of an Israelite king. And the crowd swells. As word spreads and the whole city is there on the streets. And now they're shouting this word, Hosanna, which is a Hebrew expression meaning save now, save. And they quote the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is he, happy is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they add this extra words. Blessed is the king of Israel. You see what they're doing? This is a coronation. This is welcoming and conquering king. What is Jesus doing here, accepting this, even inspiring it? One scholar calls this political street theatre. It's almost like an acted parable. Jesus is showing them that he is the king coming in his splendor. And everybody who knew their Bible there that day wouldn't remember what this means because they knew the words of the prophet Zechariah from Zechariah chapter 9. I'll read it for you. Don't bother looking it up. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, Jesus here is making a bold public statement with this choice of vehicle. The king is coming home, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he is no ordinary king. The next verse, the very next verse in Zechariah 9 proclaims that this is the final king, God's ultimate king, the one who will set the whole world to rights. Here's what it says in Zechariah 9, 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, the king, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the king who will bring about world peace and harmony. So riding in on a young donkey is a message. It's a statement to the city leaders and to everyone else. The king has come home. But notice what we see about the splendour of this king two things combine in jesus in an extraordinary way he has absolute authority and complete humility two things that are never normally found together firstly absolute authority all through john's gospel we've been seeing this his very first public sign was to go to a wedding that was about to be turned into a disaster and he transformed huge amounts of water into the finest wine then he healed people in at least one case he healed someone from a distance he just said to the the young man's father go home he'll be healed and by the time the dad got home he was he fed five thousand people with a packed lunch he just distributed it and they were full and satisfied he walked on water he gave sight to the blind he cast out evil spirits Finally, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He has absolute authority and not just in his miracles and his power, but also in his teaching. He teaches in a way that is different from every other human teacher as night is from day. Other people may say this is the way we should live or God says this or God is like this. But Jesus coolly says, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection. Jesus has absolute authority. But with that, he has this complete humility. He even demonstrates this by the way he comes into Jerusalem. A conquering king would have made his triumphal entry in an armoured chariot or on a battle horse. We know that Jesus has awesome power and we know that he has great popularity people would have rallied to his cause. But until this moment, he has kept those expectations down and tried to teach people that his kingship is going to be completely different. Until this moment, he has shunned all public attention. And yet this strange type of king now rides in on a young donkey. That doesn't just fulfill a prophecy. It shows something about the nature of his kingdom. It speaks a powerful word about his humility see in Jesus we see a unique combination of meekness and majesty that is absolutely unique he is the servant king he embodies what he's taught which is that the greatest of all must be the servant of all and his greatest act of service is yet to come my second point is this The grain that must die. Remember, we're trying to see Jesus today. The first thing we see is the splendor of the king. Now we're seeing the grain that must die. Turn back to John 12, verse 20. Actually, I'm going to pick up the story in verse 19. There's these Pharisees. We met them last week. The Pharisees are a protest group, moral uh, religious leaders. They say to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And I think what they're saying is actually quite contemptuous. They're saying they're sniffing and looking at the crowds and thinking, oh, see how all these common people have gone after him. But there's actually a strange kind of irony in that. that they're actually right. The world is going after him. And almost in fulfilment of that, the very next verse, verse 20, has some, some internationals who've travelled to Jerusalem who come specially to ask to see Jesus. They're asking for a special audience. It says in verse 20, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They've travelled a long way. These are people who presumably live in Greece, uh, part of Greek culture, but they're either believers in God who who live there or they're they're God-fearers who want to learn more. And they come and they ask this request, we want to see Jesus. And verse 23 is quite intriguing, isn't it? See, Jesus appears, when he hears that the Greeks want to see him, he appears to kind of ignore it, And not even to answer them, but to change the subject. But if we look a little deeper, we will find that this actually is the answer that they seek. You want to see Jesus? Well, here he is. Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, says Jesus, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is not only the, the splendid king, he is the grain of wheat that must die. And this little verse 24 is almost like a parable that Jesus is telling about himself. He's saying, just think about a grain of wheat. If you want to harvest, if you want a crop, if you want a food, that grain has to go into the ground and die. It has to decompose and fall apart and be torn apart by the earth. And out of it will come a crop, a great harvest even. Now, this is how Jesus will be glorified, by dying. All through John's Gospel, there have been these hints about when is Jesus' hour going to come. There's been a subtle build-up to him. Sometimes people have asked him, he said, now show your greatness. And Jesus has given a mysterious reply, gave it to his mother back in chapter 2, My time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But finally here, the hour has come. It's almost as if when the Greeks asked their question, Jesus heard a clock chime in the distance and he knew that his time had come. The hour has come. The moment that we've all been waiting for. The culmination of years of preparation. The final act that Jesus came into the world to accomplish. The the climax of all his ministry, his saving work. And what is it? It is that he must die. He must die. Just look at the logic again. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23. Verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. This is the climax of Jesus' saving work. He must be lifted up on a cross. He must die but like a grain of wheat by dying he will produce a great harvest a great crop a global people will be gathered and rescued from death and brought into his kingdom of love and light and if we're still a little bit obscure there in verses 23 and 24 he makes it even clearer further down the passage verse 32 he says and i when i am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. See, the grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die in order to produce the harvest. Jesus, The only contrast here is Jesus must be lifted up from the earth to die because he will be lifted on a cross. And there he will draw people to himself. He will save a global people. But if he does not die, there will be no harvest. Make no mistake. Tom Wright is a a scholar and a commentator on the Bible. He talks in one of his books about playing conkers as a boy. And if there are any boys watching this uh, sermon, you maybe have done this. In September, October time, we normally go down to uh, the park, Cavendish Park in West Didsbury. We go to some secret roads that I won't disclose publicly because they've got great conkers. And every year we go and get a load of them and put them in a box. And these, they're also known as horse chestnuts for those of you not from the British Isles. Um, And what you do with the conker is you drill a hole in it and you get a string, and then you try and break your mate's conquer, And the one that wins is the victor, and the other one gets smashed to pieces. Now, Tom Wright says that he used to do this as a boy. But one year, he decided to plant one. He took his best conquer, he dug a hole in the ground, he put in some sand and water, and he stuffed the conquer far down. And then, he said, it felt, at the time, a complete waste of a good conquer, But next spring, he went back. And there was a tiny shoot growing up. And the following year, there was the beginning of a small sapling. And now, over 50 years later, there is a great tree bearing hundreds, perhaps thousands, of chestnuts every year. But for that to happen, the first seed had to die. Are we seeing Jesus yet? His splendour as a king. The necessity of his death like a grain of wheat. But there's more, you know. There's the glory of the Father. There's more here. I guess that many of us watching are familiar with the ideas, the concepts that Jesus is a splendid king, a king who combines meekness and majesty. And perhaps you're familiar about the need for his sacrificial death on the cross. But there is an extra nuance in our passage today that we mustn't overlook. I think it's unique to John's Gospel. It's a rare window into the emotional life of our Lord. Just look at verse 27, will you? Verse 27, Jesus says this, and it's almost like we're, we're treading on holy ground here. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? This word troubled means deeply distressed, churned up, stirred up can be used of water being unsettled and churned. Jesus was deeply distressed, troubled, right down in his heart. The one who had come into the world full of grace and truth. The one with such extraordinary power and dignity and authority. The greatest person who ever lived. He is deeply troubled, upset at the core of his being. Now, why is that? It's because of the thought of the cross. Now, we've seen this, haven't we? Before Easter, we looked at the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark's Gospel. But, you know, this moment is even earlier than that. It's just as poignant. Right now, right in the middle of the triumphal entry, where Jesus has come into Jerusalem like a conquering king, At this moment of apparent victory and greatness and the height of popularity, Jesus' heart within him is deeply troubled. But what will he do about it? I don't know what you do when you feel like this. We all do from time to time. When you're really distressed, what do you do? We tend to find any and every possible way of escaping a troubled heart, don't we? Some people hide it by getting very, very busy. Some people try and heal it with their closest friends or family and talk it through. Some spend money, it's known as retail therapy. Some pray, Lord, get me out of this. Some numb it with alcohol and other addictions. What does Jesus do? Shall I ask God to save me from this hour, he says in verse 27? No, this is the very reason that I came into the world. He's come all this way. He's come from heaven to earth. He's entered our flesh. He's become one of us. He's lived for 33 years as a human being. He's come a long way already. He's prepared the way. He's prepared the ground for this sacrifice. He's spoken again and again of the Father's will. He's told us how the world is going to be saved. The only way, if there was another way, it would have been taken. And is he now going to ask for plan B for the exit strategy? His troubled heart knows that there is trouble ahead. But he also knows that it is through that danger rather than by sliding safely past it that the glory will shine out. So Jesus says, I won't ask for a get out clause. Father, glorify your name. And God replies. You know, there are very few times in the Bible where God actually speaks from heaven. Very few times. I suppose you can probably count them on one hand. In the New Testament, I can think of three. There's the baptism of Jesus, where he begins his public ministry. There's the transfiguration of Jesus, where he is revealed in his glory on top of a mountain with three disciples watching. And in those times, God speaks and says, this is my son, whom I love, my beloved son. Listen to him. And here is a third occasion. And when the father speaks, he speaks from the fullness of his love for the eternal son, Jesus now made flesh. Even on the eve of his darkest hour, when Jesus speaks plainly of his deep distress, the father sees it. And when Jesus resolutely proclaims, I'm not backing away now. It's as though the father can't contain his pride and his love. And he speaks. A voice came from heaven. Verse 28. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Some people say it's thundering. What it sounds like some say perhaps it's an angel speaking but jesus says this voice is for your benefit so listen to it god proclaims i have glorified my name in jesus marvelous career glory came to god and he will glorify it again in jesus extraordinary death because those people who have exploited god's world trampled on people exploited the poor ...laid the planet waste... ...destroyed people's lives... ...lived for themselves... ...all of them are now going to be condemned. But through that death... ...at the final hour... ...Jesus will also bring about salvation. Through that judgment on the world... ...the enemy of God's people... ...and the enemy of God, Satan... ...will be driven out and dethroned... ...and Jesus will be enthroned... ...at the cross. And through that cross... Millions of millions of people, a multitude that no one can number, will be gathered to Jesus Christ and become one family from every tribe, every ethnic group, every language group, every nation. The splendour of the King, the grain that must die, and the glory of the Father. Jesus was obedient even unto death, death on a cross. So what about us? What does this mean what are its implications for you and me now our passage contains the biggest challenge you will hear in your life you might have noticed i skipped over it when we read (laughs) i wasn't skipping over it to avoid it i was doing it because we had to come back to this at the end i shared this this text with my wife on one of our daily walks this week and she said mike if you say that no one in manchester is going to believe it no one in manchester wants to accept this No one wants this teaching. And I was actually afraid because I thought, I feared that she was right. And that's a big problem for a preacher, isn't it? You've got to say something on Sunday morning that no one wants to hear. Well, here it is. You ready? Jesus says, verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Whereas anyone who keeps their, who, who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. Now, what do you say about that? As I've studied more, I've come to realise how this works. You see, if you just looked at Jesus' challenge in those words, come and follow me, and that means, by the way, Put me so much in front of everything else in your life. It's as if you hate your life. Don't try and keep it. Lay it all out for me. If you just looked at Jesus' challenge on its own, it will make no sense to you. It is insane. John Stark is a pastor. I think he's in New York City now, somewhere in Manhattan. Stark writes in a book preaching to the secular age, Christianity is not a means to human flourishing. You hear that? Christianity is not a means to human flourishing. In fact, Christianity instructs us to die to self, to consider others more important, to turn the other cheek when it's slapped, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, to enter into weeping and sadness with others. That's what Christianity offers you. Come and die it's not a a means for fulfilling your life project it's a means for laying down your life and that challenge by the way makes no sense at all it's insane and if you haven't really seen Jesus so have you seen him because if you have seen his kingship his splendor and glory but wrapped up in meekness and humility if you have seen his determination to be like the grain of wheat that will fall and die in order to bring about a a crop of far beyond all calculation, if you have seen that even at the moment of his deepest trouble, when his heart was distressed, he resolutely committed to follow through for the glory of God, if you have seen all of that about Jesus, then I think everything should start to come into perspective for you. So let me ask, Will you take up the challenge to follow Jesus Christ today? Here's that verse again. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And here's a promise. Verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. One of the great preachers of the 19th century was actually in our own city here in Manchester. He was a Scotsman called Alexander McLaren. He pastored here for some 50 years. Alexander McLaren speaking about this passage, talking about Jesus. And by the way, McLaren preached on it at least three sermons from this one passage. He he says, imagine someone who has to climb a hard mountain. It's got sheer uh, mountain faces and, and difficult paths to, to, cl- to climb. At times it's like a glacier and there's ice and it's difficult to climb and they, they fear that they will die doing it but if they have a guide in front of them then they can make the climb, they can do the journey and as they walk and climb and follow that path their eye is fixed on the guide who goes in front who marks out the way who sometimes cuts the, the holes in the ice so that he can climb who makes the way clear for them. And that's what it is to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, one who he calls a friend, one who knows Jesus and who is in real relationship with him is to be one who sees him and on life's journey to take his path and take up our cross and follow him daily, which means dying to self and all those things we thought about earlier on. And the promise that Jesus Gives is a remarkable one. If you follow him, uh, uh, you will also be with him. And that's the great reward that we look forward to. Not to a big bank balance, not even to great health, not particularly to eternal life, but to being with Jesus. He's the reward for following, is to know him, whom to know is life. Eternal and the Father will honour the one who serves him. So, I'm not going to go into detailed application today. I think I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit right now to make that clear to you what it means to you to follow Jesus Christ today and tomorrow and in the weeks to come. Shall we pray? Gracious Lord, we need you, we need your words. Words that are life itself. We need you to speak into our darkness and bring light. We need you to speak into our death and bring life. We need you to speak into our confusion and bring clarity. We need you to speak into our hearts that are so often full of self-pity and hatred and bring love. We would see Jesus so that we could be like him. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would send your Holy Spirit now in the quiet of this moment to make known to us each individually what it means for us to follow you. Speak, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.